Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Nicole Dunka, an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Together with my colleague, Jen Abelson, I am a co-host of a new podcast called Broken Doors. It's a six-part series investigating no-knock warrants and how they're deployed in the American justice system and what happens when accountability is flawed on every level. We'll hope you check it out, but today we're talking about no-knock warrants and we are welcoming Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford um, to the program. We're gonna talk about the use of no-knock warrants across the country and his efforts to restrict them within his home state. Thank you so much for joining us, Attorney General Ford. Thank you for having me, Nicole. So no-knock warrants have been back in the spotlight because of the Amir Locke shooting in Minnesota. Can we start with the basics here, Attorney General? Can you tell us about no-knock warrants and what they mean and how they compare to regular search warrants? Absolutely. First off, let me say thank you again, Nicole, for uh, this important conversation and and thank you for for including me. Uh, You know, no-knock warrants, as you've indicated at the beginning of your podcast here, have a history dating back uh, a few decades. And uh, most folks are familiar with the typical warrant uh, called knock and announce, where police officers will come to a door knock and announce themselves as officers and uh, ask for entry or for conversation. No-knock warrants are those you see on television and oftentimes on the news now where law enforcement busts down a door without announcing themselves first. Uh, And as you might imagine, that leads to potentially a lot of trepidation inside at home. Uh, Not knowing who it is that's breaking down your door uh, could lead to uh, danger uh, on both sides, whether it's a civilian or whether it's a law enforcement officer. And so, um, you know, here in Nevada, when I uh, presented this bill, that you've already referenced. We we acknowledge the fact that law enforcement in our state uh, rarely used no-knock warrants, but what we wanted to do was to be both reactive to the Breonna Taylor killing, but preventive as well, proactive in a sense that we wanted to codify what was good practice within police departments and make it part of law in our state. Uh, and as you've indicated, the Amir Locke um, circumstance in Minnesota, uh, and frankly, one here in our own state uh, with Isaiah Williams uh, has put no-knock warrants back into the forefront. Yeah, we actually spoke with you over the course of our reporting for the podcast, and we really thank you for your outlook. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the specifics of the bill and why you thought it was so necessary? Absolutely. So, you know, again, after the the, the murder of George Floyd uh, last year, uh, to be sure, uh, this was high on alert. Uh, in addition to the Kalinga Brown and Taylor, the police reform was high on alert in, in, in conversation here in our state. Um, the Brown and Taylor killing, in, in particular. Um, it touched us dramatically because, again, it was the wrongful execution of a no-knock warrant. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was to ensure that we could address issues that we were hearing uh, in the community around this issue. And so we presented legislation uh, that had uh, parties from all sides of the issues, uh, pu- public defenders and prosecutors, law enforcement, the ACLU, 
community organizations, um, or, um, rank and file citizens, so to speak, uh, in the room together, working through um, legislation and bills to try to uh, come up with a solution to improve relationships between law enforcement and the communities that we serve, particularly in the no-knock context. And I, I have to give specific credit uh, to my Speaker, Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson and Senate Majority Leader Nicole Canizaro, who were, were receptive and supportive of these efforts, uh, including several Republicans on the other side of the aisle. Uh, for example, Assemblyman Tom, Tom Roberts and Senator Ben Keekupper, who also reached out in order to be part of these conversations. Uh, so we were able to pass a law re relative to no-knock warrants that passed, and I will uh, say unanimously, uh, which is very difficult to do in this day and age, as you know, uh, that does put grave restrictions on the use of no-knock warrants. Uh, it does not ban the use here in our state, but it does put great restrictions on it, and uh, happy to discuss what some of those restrictions are and some of what, what some of those uh, parameters were. Yeah, I'd love to talk more specifically about what their act, those restrictions actually are. But I also want to go a little um, bit back when you talked about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Um, you mentioned it while signing the bill. You mentioned it here. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how this issue resonates with you on a personal level, why you found yourself uh, so compelled to really look into this? Uh, absolutely. Listen, I, uh, I've said it a few times, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's, if it's not obvious, I'm a black man. I'm a black man, I'm married to a black woman, raising three black sons and a black nephew. Uh, and so when we see instances of uh, black Americans being wrongly killed at the hands of law enforcement, um, it hits home, it resonates with us. And it, it, it's something that uh, gives me a great trepidation, um, a word that I used earlier. And, and uh, it's something um, that, again, uh, has us to live in what I call perpetual anxiety. Uh, and it's 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 an unfair burden, as I've said before, and it's one that that can, that we continue to to carry, uh, but one that I'm confident that we can continue to relieve ourselves of through efforts like this, um, where the community comes together with law enforcement to work through issues like this that address concerns. Um, and and again, personally in my own home, we have those concerns with with three three black sons and a black nephew. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll as an aside just tell you after. Um, after Ahmaud Arbery was killed by vigilantes in Georgia, um, my, my wife got upset with me because I had sent my son out, my, my then, I think it was 14-year-old son out to take the trash out. It was past dusk uh, and she was concerned. She said, don't send my child out past dusk because I don't want what happened to Ahmaud Arbery to happen to him. And, and these are the types of conversations we have in our home uh, because of, again, the, 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 the actual anxiety that exists when we see these types of things happen uh, to our community. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think that's a really important perspective that a lot of people need to hear. Um, and to kind of go back to the bill, you were saying that it doesn't outright ban no-knocks. I mean, when you were working on this, you know, were you encountering any pushback from uh, some sectors? Were, say were people saying, don't do an outright ban? Like, what is law enforcement's general view when you talk about restricting or banning no-knock warrants? Well, let me offer you two responses to that. The first of which is to say that um, I have to give law enforcement credit where it's due. Uh, I didn't get much pushback from law enforcement at all around this conversation. I think they understood the content and the context of what of what we were dealing with at the time, and so we hand in hand with community groups to ensure that we found a responsible piece of legislation to address no-knock warrants. Um, I did get questions around and I did acknowledge at the outset of my testimony in the legislature um, as to why I did not seek an outright ban. And frankly, it's because I recognize that I'm not all prescient. I'm not omnipotent. 
We don't know of every circumstance in which a no-knock warrant uh, could exist. And there may be one circumstance where it actually saves uh, a civilian's life or a or protects a law enforcement officer. And so what I wanted to do was instead of banning it outright, was to recognize that there may be a one-off circumstance where it was more appropriate, uh, but to put straight grave restrictions around its use to minimize the opportunity for us to have um, a misuse of no-knock warrants uh, and and see um, the negative ramifications of their use. And so what are some of those uses that are still allowed under this bill? Well, let me tell you what's not allowed, first off, and that's just, you know, we've restricted the use of no-knock warrants. Um, um, you cannot use it in a misdemeanor crime. You can't use it in a property crime. You can't use it in a, in a simple drug possession crime. In my estimation, they simply do not rise to the standard of danger that's required for the use of this procedure. Uh, and so under the restrictions, law enforcement agencies who wish to use no-knock warrants must first prove that there is a significant and immediate threat to public safety that justifies the use. And another consideration is officer and civilian safety. Would using a standard no-knock, pardon me, a standard knock and announce warrant compromise the safety of officers or, or civilians? And so in drafting the requirements for the no-knock warrant, um, I consulted with law enforcement, including my own chief of investigations, who spent 29 years in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, uh, to come up with, again, ways in which we can put parameters around uh, no-knock warrants uh, uh, for use in felony circumstances that are of the gravest type of, of uh, circumstance. Thank you. And in our reporting, we found it was very difficult to get data on no-knock warrants and how often they're used. And we couldn't get many law enforcement leaders to talk about the use of no-knocks within their own departments. And before I get to this next question, I'd love to play a little bit of the podcast um, to give you an idea of what we were reporting on. In this clip, my co-host Jen Abelson is talking to Sheriff Cecil Cantrell from Monroe County, Mississippi. Sheriff Cantrell was shaking his head and starting to look agitated. I'd been asking him about no-knock warrants for several minutes. And you have no like idea of how often they were used or sort of how frequently? I couldn't, I couldn't answer that and give you an honest answer. Okay, that's fine. I appreciate you saying that. Um, so did you, I guess I was curious too, like, Can did I you, say that? No, these are my questions. <laughs> we were sitting about two feet away, and then the sheriff reached his arm out and made an actual grab for the notes in my lap. She'll, she'll ask them. <laughs> I promise I'll get through them. Um, I, I want to know, You did, know what you're doing? You're interrogating me. Oh, I don't think so. I'm trying to have an interview. You want to ask me some questions? You can, I mean. I want to see that paper. Oh, this, this is my work. I can't give you my work. So in that clip, you do see a little reluctance from some officials to talk about how often they're used, how frequently they're used, what kind of data is available for it. Uh, you talked a little bit about Nevada saying they weren't used that often. Um, can you talk about how you see it being used nationwide? Do you have an idea about how often it's being used nationwide? Well, I probably, I can offer, um, nationwide examples, I, you know, I can offer a recitation of public information, right? In 2017, 
Uh, we know that the New York Times conducted an investigation and reported that, uh, and I'll quote, at least 81 civilians and 13 law enforcement officers died uh, in no-knock warrant raids between 2010 and 2016. Um, you know, we also know that um, um, here in our own state, again, that, that they were limited. And you know, we have one of our large law enforcement agencies in, in our state that has said um, that they generally prohibit um, no-knock warrants except for a deliberate hostage rescue caused by immediate life res uh, rescue e exigency. So, um, you know, while again at the at the national level, I probably couldn't offer you statistics um, that are more current than recent studies. But I can say here in our state, we are working toward ensuring that uh, they are minimally used and that when and that when they are used, they are used um, uh, appropriately. And we're actually looking into that with a story that we'll have out on Friday. So I hope everyone will uh, go see that. The New York Times piece um, actually includes a lot of knock and announce uh, warrants in that as well, but is generally looking at SWAT team raids. So that's a, a very important piece of reporting that really has been eye-opening for a lot of people on this kind of issue. And in general, I mean, no-knock warrants are only supposed to be used in cases when, as you were saying, an officer might get hurt or sometimes where evidence might get destroyed. These are generally the cases where they're being used. We looked into judicial scrutiny um, and how there seems to be little training on this and how sometimes, you know, judges were routinely so sorry. No, it's fine. That's, that's how it goes with a live event. Um, and so, we often saw how judges might have been routinely issuing these kinds of warrants. I mean, do you have any thoughts on the issue of judicial scrutiny and their role in kind of making sure that these are being used only in kind of really dire circumstances? Yeah, you know, you, you raise a, a great point, and it's something that we talked about in the context of drafting legislation that, again, that passed unanimously. Uh, and it begins with, the, uh, well, maybe it doesn't begin with, but certainly encompasses the affidavit requirement that an officer must um, comply with when seeking a no-knock warrant. And so under our legislation now, the affidavit must show probable cause that establishes that the charged crime is a felony and that the facts in the case show that there's a real risk to public safety. Again, it's not just the law, law enforcement officer's public safety issue that we're concerned about. We're concerned about the general public safety as well. Uh, the affidavit has to explain why a, no, a knock and announce warrant won't suffice. Why wouldn't it work? Um, it also affords the, um, the judge the ability to issue on its own volition a summons as opposed to a warrant for arrest. Uh, and uh, the, applica the application for a warrant has to specify whether it can be executed during daylight hours. That's important uh, between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. And if not, why not? Um, the affidavit has to uh, describe the investigation to date um, in detail and explain what evidence uncovered uh, in the what pardon me what uncovered evidence indicates that a no-knock warrant is necessary um, the affiant must certify to the court that nothing less than a no-knock warrant could be sufficient uh, and then the affiant must certify that the officers who are actually affecting the no-knock warrant are properly trained to do so so there are uh, obviously interactions with the judicial system uh, that uh, we have implemented uh, that we have placed into this legislation that allows us to hopefully uh, more to, to hopefully implement no-knock warrants safely. Thank you so much. No, it's great to really hear the specifics of that bill. Um, I also wanted to zoom out a little bit. I mean, you've talked a little bit about this, but 
from what you know about policing, I mean, do you have a sense of the kind of communities that are most often, you know, bearing the brunt of these kinds of raids? Like what communities are seeing these kinds of raids the most? Well, listen, it would be pure speculation on my part to, to argue what used to be, because what, as I've indicated, um, in Nevada, no-knock warrants were very seldomly used. And that was part of the testimony that I was able to share with the legislature uh, when I passed this legislation. It was an acknowledgement, again, that our local law enforcement had done a generally good job of limiting these of no-knock warrants. Um, so you know, that's, that's, that's my response in that regard. You know, we, regardless of the community in which it's used, however, we want to be certain that, again, when they are used, that it is an appropriate use um, that has, that, that, and that it is a use that is uh, pursuant to the law. And in those cases that they were used, I mean, what was your impression about when they were typically used? What was it looking like on the ground and in practice? Well, again, the last no-knock warrant, uh, it hasn't been used frequently enough for us to even talk about um, you know, more general responses in that regard or specific responses on, on that type of question there. Um, what I do note again is that the, the recent use was um, um, to to effect an arrest on um, a suspect um, in, in the wee hours of the morning. Um, and, you know, it's something that, again, we're going to have to be looking at to ensure that the law was followed uh, and that all precautions were properly taken. Now, again, I'm not in a position to be able to dictate or to or, or to detail which communities uh, were those in the past that were targeted, so to speak, uh, for the use of monarch warrants. Yeah, so in our reporting, we did see that there were a lot of cases in which these were used for narcotic searches. There were certain departments or certain squads that were really using these pretty routinely um, and some judges who are routinely issuing them for narcotic searches. And I think that's a pattern and practice that we've seen kind of nationwide. Uh, I think it also speaks a little bit to what you were talking about with the bill. I mean, do you think that these should be used in these cases? Uh, usually when they're looking for drugs, uh, they're looking for narcotics. Well, we put in again, a restriction on the use and it can't be a misdemeanor crime. Uh, it can be a property crime and it can be a simple drug possession crime. We're talking about felony crimes that rise to the level uh, to the standard of uh, to a standard of danger uh, that presents a significant and immediate threat to public safety. And that's a case by case analysis, to be sure, uh, which is one of the reasons why, again, the affidavit requirement is so important. And so a judge will have to be uh, persuaded by an, an affidavit in a circumstance, whether it involves drugs or whether it involves a kidnapping or whether it involves uh, something, uh, you know, another particular crime. It's a case-specific inquiry that the affidavit is going to have to detail. Uh, and, you know, we'll leave it to the judicial branch to be able to um, make, that, make that determination. And after the Amir Law case, uh, there were renewed calls to restrict or ban no-knock warrants on the federal level. What do you think about those bans on the federal level? Do you think that's something that is likely to pass or actually go uh, be enacted? Well, obviously, no one can predict what's going to happen at the federal level. Um, I'll, I'll note that last September, the Department of Justice did announce restrictions on federal agents' use of no-knock warrants, uh, and then the, the much more narrow than what is allowed by law. Uh, and under the new restrictions, no-knock warrants are generally limited to uh, situations where an agent has a reasonable ground to believe 
uh, to believe that knock knocking and announcing the agent's presence would create an imminent threat of physical violence to the agent or to another person. Uh, and, you know, I think that that's something to consider uh, or to keep in mind. And President Biden himself has also said that he's looking at limiting other federal agents use of uh, the tactic after the killing of Amir Locke in Minnesota this past February. Um, but one of the biggest proposed changes to no-knock warrants nationwide, as you know, I'm certain, is in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, which would bar these warrants in federal drug investigations uh, and uh, provide incentives for states to do the same. Uh, I've been very clear in my support for the bill, uh, and I've joined, in fact, a coalition of several other colleagues of mine, attorneys general across the nation uh, from other states to urge Congress to take action on this. But again, uh, predicting what Congress would do is something that's beyond the purview of all of us, I'm certain uh, you understand. I am not a mind reader. That is correct. Um, but speaking of Amir Locke, there was big news on that front last week when prosecutors declined to file charges against the officer who shot and killed him. What did you think of that decision? Well, that was in Minnesota with my good friend Keith Ellison, who I believe has already demonstrated his penchant for justice. Um, we have to be able to develop a trust or redevelop a trust in the judicial in our uh, criminal justice system. Uh, I trust Keith Ellison in his analysis. Uh, and, you know, it, obviously it's it's a tragic circumstance with Mr. Locke's uh, killing, uh, but but I do trust that the investigation that um, General Ellison undertook uh, and the determination that he uh, arose, uh, arose at, um, arrived at. Pardon me. Yeah, and in that case, um, it obviously involved a, a victim who had a gun. I mean, do you think, what do you think of how uh, Americans culture around guns, how many guns are in America? How does that dynamic play into no-knock warrants and the dangers that officers may face if they do force their way into doors where people may not know their police? Well, well, certainly it plays a, a, a huge dynamic in it. Uh, and frankly, it's beyond no-knock warrants. We all know um, that the prevalence of guns in our society um, causes concerns for law enforcement, and uh, which is one of the reasons why many in law enforcement uh, agree with common sense uh, gun safety measures that legislatures and the Congress has attempted to pass. Uh, I do think that the issue is compounded when you are talking about no-knock warrants uh, and the execution of those, because those who are lawful, uh, you know, uh, those who are lawfully owning firearms uh, may very well resort to use their firearm when someone bursts into their home unannounced. Um, it's a um, an expected response, uh, and it's something that that we should keep in mind as we continue talking around these issues. Right, and I think um, I've heard from law enforcement officers who defend these warrants. They say that they need that element of surprise. Um, and like we were just talking about, there have been cases where police officers have been hurt during these no-knock warrants. We've found some cases where police officers have been killed during no-knock warrants, um, where the person within the home says they didn't know that it was an officer uh, when they shot. Um, when they were firing their gun. I mean, can you talk a little bit about this idea that these warrants do keep um, officers safer when you're thinking about uh, law enforcement officers who offer that defense of these? Well, let me say this about our legislation. I mean, we, we acknowledge um, that particular concern, especially on the execution of no-knock warrants, which is why we have said that if they are to be used, we've established a rule around the implementation that says that 
once the uh, the, the no-knock warrant has been executed, you have to immediately announce your presence because then the, the element of surprise is gone, uh, at least to try to get um, information to whoever, whomever is in the home that there, it's law enforcement that is bursting into the home as opposed to an intruder. Um, that can help reduce uh, misidentification, which can also help reduce uh, tragic events of law enforcement being shot, but also uh, individuals who um, are, are, are innocent or not the target of an on-act warrant, likewise um, avoid being, being harmed. It is a very real issue, and it is a very real concern, which is, again, the reason why in our state, uh, no-knock warrants are very seldomly used. Um, it is a dangerous circumstance that should only be reserved and preserved for uh, the most heinous of circumstances, terrorism, for example, or uh, trying to um, uh, you know, rescue a hostage under circumstances uh, that, that would require a no-knock warrant. So um, those are my thoughts on that. Uh, you know, I, there, there's no reason for us to um, um, doubt the uh, seriousness of this issue, and we need to be cognizant of the fact that safety needs, needs to be at the forefront. And before I get to uh, one of my final questions, I'd, I'd like to play this clip from Brianna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer. Uh, I think that uh, we've mentioned Brianna Taylor's name a lot with this issue throughout this uh, entire conversation. So it would be great to hear from her. We did talk to her for this podcast and we'll be featuring her um, conversation. I cannot believe what so everything that's happened in the last few years that their police officers still choosing to behave in that manner i can't believe that that people are still doing this thing you know like and and here we are coming up on march the 13th again and, and no one's been held accountable for what happened to Brianna. and to have to stomach this day all over again is insane to me it's I've said this a hundred times every it's still March the 13th to me right and it was a very tough interview interview to have I mean what is the legacy of Breonna Taylor's death on no-knock warrants what do you think the landscape of no-knock warrants will look like in five years ten years when you think about how this death has really um, affected how people think of these kinds of warrants. Well, that was a, a difficult uh, interview to hear and my heart continues to go out to her mother. Um, can't imagine, I, I got bad goosebumps right now hearing that. And, uh, you know, part, part of her legacy, to use your phraseology, uh, is the legislation that I passed. Uh, it was in her name uh, that I passed this uh, in an effort to cut down uh, on um, those types of results. We uh, we need to keep in mind that that um, tragedies like this will continue to occur uh, unless we put restrictions uh, on the use of no-knock warrants and and, uh, and ensure that there are safeguards around their use to the extent they will be allowed to be used. Again, which is the reason why I have said in our legislation and we passed in our legislation the requirement that law enforcement immediately announce themselves once they're in the building. Uh, we, our legislation also requires uh, body cameras to be worn whenever practicable so that they can see, so that we can look back on what happened. Um, and that uh, we also require that law enforcement, even before they execute a no-knock warrant, even if they have their permission, um, they have to do a last-minute um, uh, assessment, analysis, 
to determine whether the need for a no-knock warrant is still present. Uh, and if circumstances at any given moment create a risk to innocent people that was not previously ascertained or present, then they should consider that in, uh, before executing a no-knock warrant. Uh, I think those are some of the legacies, uh, trying to find ways to limit the use uh, and in other states to uh, eliminate the use of no-knock warrants um, um, because what we saw in Breonna Taylor's killing uh, was something that uh, was clearly a travesty and a tragedy. And I, I actually do have one other question, if that's okay. But there are some advocates who say that just outright banning or restricting no-knock warrants is one step, um, but there should be even more done to kind of restrict regular knock-and-announce warrants, you know, to make sure that there are even more restrictions about making sure that uh, law enforcement officers wait longer at the door or that they can't use um, evidence in certain cases if they're violating some of these uh, different rules uh, for, for, um, for forced entries. I mean, what do you think of those thoughts that there should be even more restrictions with regular search warrants to help cut down on these kinds of dangerous raids? Well, you talk about the evidentiary issue. Let me, before I get to your question about regular knock and announce, indicate that in our legislation, we also have repercussions for uh, evidentiary issues. If, for example, the the, the affiant lies, uh, then the phrase you've heard on TV, poisonous tree, fruit of the poisonous tree, that doctrine kicks in and any evidence can't be utilized. And so we have uh, restrictions that we have uh, repercussions in our law to address that. Now, to your question about additional restrictions on regular knock and announce warrants. Um, you know, I, I'm not in a position to be able to opine on particular suggestions in that regard, but what I will do is what I've always done, which is to the extent those conversations come up, I will get people at the table. I will have law enforcement, I will have the ACLU, I will have the public defenders, I will have community groups, and we will sit together and talk about what makes sense uh, in, in the context conform our legislation to different expectations. And so, uh, you know, that's my response to your query there. And that's something that I would suggest that everyone do, uh, that, that you listen and that you have that, that you communicate with those who are affected by these issues and try to come up with a solution uh, that will help address and accommodate some of the concerns. Yeah, I think we'll really have to keep our eye on that um, because I feel like this issue is going to keep being in the spotlight as we've seen. Uh, but I think we're out of time right now. And Attorney General Ford, thank you so much for sharing all your insights. I felt like they were so important to hear kind of the broader picture and you know some of these very nitty gritty specifics. So I really appreciate you joining us here on Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.